The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Turn your Bibles, please, to uh, John chapter 14. We continue on in the upper room discourse. You know, I'm blessed when I see you parents caring for your children. <clears throat> Your little ones, your uh, <clears throat> especially when they are hurt or upset, uh, you wrap your arms around them and you care for them, and you see church people doing that, and you make promises to them. You know, you say, "Hey, it won't hurt very long. Um, tomorrow you'll feel much better." All right, let me, let me put a Band-Aid on that. That'll, that'll, that'll help. Um, that'll make it better. And if you don't have children and you haven't had the experience of comforting a child, I'm sure Jenny would be glad to sign you up for child care. And then you can scratch comforting a child off your bucket list. And so make sure you do that right after the service. Then when I was thinking about this, I think, then we make the silliest promise of all. Parents, how many of you are guilty? I am. Let me kiss it. That'll make it better. My children never fell for that. Don't touch me. Don't get near me. What child falls for that promise? The medicine, the band-aids are all good things in thinking about how you care for your kids, but the promises are good, too. You're going to be better. Things will be different maybe in five minutes. (laughs) just seems tragic right now. And throughout this chapter 14 is what Jesus is doing to the disciples. Comforting, making promises. Let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I am the only way to the Father. He promises that his his leaving them won't be the end of their mission. He promises that they'll do even greater works than he did. He promises if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And best of all, the Father is going to give you another helper. Pastor Greg preached on that gift of the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago while I was out of town. And while I was out of town, I had an opportunity to walk across a 2,000-year-old bridge. JP, show us that bridge. I had a chance to walk across that bridge with all those other little tiny people down there on the second second level. <clears throat> that bridge is holding up an aqueduct that when the Romans finished building this bridge, by the way, there's no mortar in that bridge. It's being held up by its own design. <laughs> um <clears throat> And uh, when water started flowing at the top there toward the city of Nimes, France, in the year 50, when the Romans finished it, I got to thinking while I was walking across that bridge, 
That was 40 years before, approximately 40 years before John wrote the Gospel of John. And I always like to, when I go to old places, um, sometimes when I talk to old people, I like to go back and find out, or at least consider, what was it like? What was it like that they had ingenuity for miles and miles and miles to run water at a very, very, very slight slope all the way down to the city of Nimes? So all the rich people, the slaves built the bridge so all the rich people could get the water in Nimes. What was that like? What was it like to ride a horse across that bridge or to live in those days? Amazing days in the Roman Empire, which eventually fell. And you may have often thought, too, because this is the time of Jesus. What would it, boy, wouldn't it have been nice to be back there then? To see Jesus face to face? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great? And it could be that in this day and age you have thought, you know, it would, it would be easier to believe if I could just hear his words and watch him pray and watch him heal people. It'd be much easier to believe and obey him if I could live with him and touch him like the disciples were able to do. And yet here in John chapter 14, John's telling us that's not the case. What we're being told in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And then verses 15 and on, when he talks about sending another comforter, what he's telling us is, you know what? Those of you in the living in the 21st century have it much better than those disciples had it with regard to their relationship with Jesus. He's going away. He's going away so that they can even have it much better. He's going away because that dynamic relationship that you can have with him can only come if he goes away and the Father sends another helper, another comforter, the paraclete. You see, when the disciples were with Jesus, you know, when Jesus was asleep, Jesus wasn't there. When Jesus walked up into the mountain to pray to the Father, Jesus wasn't with them. When Jesus was out somewhere else or when the disciples went away, when they went into town to buy groceries, they didn't have the presence of Jesus. And the promise of John chapter 14 is that we've got it much better There is never a time when his children aren't without him. What a glorious promise. He's going away. He's telling them that and they're troubled about it. Uh, So he comforts them. He reassures them and he gives them promises. And we have four more promises in today's text we'll deal with. 
You see, it's the promises that we hang on to. My wife's reading this year. Um, she's read through it before, but um, Spurgeon's Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. Have you ever have you ever used that devotional? Not morning and evening, but Spurgeon's Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. It's 365 daily devotions, and all 365 of them are promises of God. Check out the checkbook. The word is full of promises, more, many more than 365. We have some today in this text, starting at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you, will, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who believes me, who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? Well... Let me stop right there. This is the fourth interruption. Jesus is going through this discourse, and this is the fourth time one of the disciples has interrupted him. Peter, back in 1336, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterwards. And then Thomas asked a similar question there when Jesus says, And you know the way where I'm going in chapter 14, verse 4. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. Just a few moments later, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you can know him and have seen him. And Philip interrupts. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And so this is the fourth interruption in this brief part of the discourse, Judas, not Iscariot, said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Promises, promises. We have four in this text today, and all of them relate to the future relationship he was to have with his disciples and his relationship he's to have with us as well. And the very first promise is resurrection. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. He calls them back in um, chapter 13, in verse um, 33, I think. 
Yeah, he's talking to his disciples and he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. He calls them little children. So that connects really well for them, for him saying to them, I will not leave you as orphans. But it goes further than that. I won't leave you as helpless orphans. I won't leave you alone. I won't leave you by yourself. Why? He says in that same sentence, in fact, you will see me. Uh, John Selmeyer preached on adoption a couple of weeks ago. A really good message. And if you haven't, if you weren't here uh, to hear John's message, um, you need to get online and grab that thing and listen to it probably more than once. That's a really good message. We talked about adoption, our spiritual adoption into the family of God out of Romans 8. Um, and, um, and yet what Jesus is speaking about here is not leaving them as orphans because they're going to see them, him. They're, he's going to be with them. And not only that, he's going to be with them physically. This is not just a spiritual thing he's talking about. He's not going to leave them fatherless for sure. He won't leave them. In fact, they'll see him in a couple of days. He's not even specific about when he'll see them. I will come to you. And there are arguments. You read the commentators. You you read all the different arguments about what does he mean by I will come to you. The different comings. Some of them talk about the resurrection. Some of them talk about the gift of the Spirit. He comes to them in the gift of the Spirit. Some of them talk about the second coming, the perusia, or some sort of combination of, of those. And, 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 and that's the problem we deal with in this text. The word coming um, is used with regard to the resurrection in John chapter 20 a couple of times. And it's personal language, he says here. I will Come to you. It's personal language that he's using. But this this text that we're looking at today is framed for the, before it and right after it in uh, some text that talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit. Some commentators think this coming language refers to the second coming. In relation to verse 3 of chapter 14, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I will take you to myself that where I am there you may be also. And then some commentators take this language, all three different comings, and put them all together and mash them, get them all mushed up. That's a theological term, mushed up. <clears throat> and says it doesn't really matter which one you talk about. Uh, when it, because you're dealing with the same truth, I will come to you. That personal language talks about the resurrection, clearly speaking of the upcoming resurrection. Number one, John never talks about the coming of Jesus by the Holy Spirit or the coming of Jesus in the Holy Spirit. So that, that takes out the Holy Spirit argument there. Those who debate this um, will continue to debate it, but I, I believe he's talking about his coming in a couple of days. You will see me, he's saying. And Matthew Henry, though, he, has, um, he 
Uh, he brought all the comings together in a quite capable way, as he does. Christ promises that he would continue his care of his disciples. I will not leave you orphans or fatherless, for though I leave you, yet I leave you this comfort. I will come to you. I will come speedily to you in my resurrection. I will come daily to you in my spirit, in the tokens of his love and the visits of his grace. I will come certainly at the end of time. Those only that see Christ with an eye of faith shall see him forever. The world sees him no more till the second coming, but his disciples have communion with him in his absence. So Matthew Henry put it all together. I don't think he's right in this case. (gasps) But when you read 18 through 20, you see how personal it is. It's clear that John's not confused. And he's speaking about the imminent resurrection of Jesus Christ in just a couple of days. For this is just a few hours before the crucifixion that he's saying all of this. He's talking about leaving in death. Now, I won't leave you helpless. I won't leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you at the resurrection. Clearly, the time when the disciples come to recognize that Jesus is the Father. Now, remember, we've been talking about this a long time. Jesus is convincing the religious rulers and the disciples himself of his deity, of his divinity. Over and over and over, he's talking about this. He's teaching this. He's relating this to them, hoping that their eyes uh, would open to some of these truths. And the disciples begin to see it as we have moved through the Gospel of John. But when they recognize that Jesus is who he has been teaching, he is. It is when they recognize him as the resurrected Christ. Uh, Leon Morris, in his uh, commentary about uh, this text, says, Probably we should understand the saying to look right through the crucifixion to the resurrection. I love how he said that. Look right through the crucifixion to the resurrection. The consequence of Jesus rising from the dead is new life for the disciples. Because he says, what did he say? Because I live, you also will live. And also one other point about um, this particular um, discussion uh, is that verses 18 through 20, I think, are even more confirmed in chapter 16. And we'll get to that eventually, uh, starting at verse 16. You can read that later. But, but this, this argument's confirmed by that passage, I think. And besides, Jesus can't ask for the Father to send another helper, another comforter, unless he rises from the dead. In short, unless he comes to his disciples again after his impending departure in death. Speaks of the world seeing him no more. 
So he's not talking about spiritual sight. He's already talked about all those people that he's been, all those religious rulers that have been questioning over and over and over throughout the, the gospel. He's already talked to them about not being able to see. So he's speaking here about physical sight, not spiritual sight. He's already spoken of the world being blind. So when he says the world doesn't see him anymore here, it's because of his death. But you will see me, he says to the disciples. You will see me in a couple of days when I'm resurrected. And it's only the disciples that saw him. Or at least those people that saw him after the resurrection were ones who came to know him as believers. So only disciples saw him after the resurrection. The world won't see me anymore. And here we see another level of the resurrection as well. Really, it's a double resurrection we're talking about here. This first promise, not only my resurrection, you will see me, but because I live, you'll live also. You'll be resurrected. It's not only the resurrection of Jesus that he's talking about. Speaks of theirs. Clearly refers to their, their future life. We learn a couple of things of this, that the life of the Christian depends on that life of Christ. The life of the Christian depends on him being resurrected. The believer is united with Christ. If we're separated from Christ, we could never enjoy the spiritual life that he's promised. We could never enjoy the eternal joy that he's promised us in the hereafter. We're separated from him. So the life that he offers, because I live, you also will live, depends on the life of Christ. Second fact is the fact that Jesus lives is a pledge to all who believe in him that they shall be saved. Means that because you will live, because I live, you will live also. Because I overcome uh, death, you will live also. Then you'll be able to overcome your enemies. I, I will deliver you from the hands of your enemies. I'll deliver you from your temptations. I'll deliver you from your trials. That's the promise of the resurrection too. And further, we'll look at verse 20 in just a minute. Since, since verse 20 and following speak of him knowing the Father and knowing the Son after the resurrection and that he dwells in us and that the Father even dwells in us. He's talking about living the resurrection life now. Because I live, you live also. That doesn't mean that you will live at some point when I come again or that you'll live forever, that you won't die because I defeated death. No, that you'll live the resurrection life even today, this very moment. That's the promise. What a glorious promise. You'll live, you'll come alive, you'll resurrect in a new sense, at my resurrection. 
So that's, here's the stream of thought. Jesus has promised to ask the Father to send another counselor, the Spirit of Truth, the Comforter, to be with his disciples forever. They should be encouraged by that. This, this helper lives with them and will be with them, we see in the second part of verse 17. And as you can imagine, the unspoken response of these disciples is going to be, well, this is a great promise that you're going to send another helper for us, but what's going to happen to you? At least that's what I'd be thinking. And Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You'll see me. We can tell the true situation by the questions these disciples are asking. He's telling them he's going to die. The person that they've staked their lives on. The great Messiah, the Savior of their people, the one that they had placed their trust in, was going to die. They never really understood the nature of the cross, even up to this point. Because with him gone, everything is gone. If we were honest with ourselves, we'd confess that they had every single right to be disappointed. They had staked their lives on him. They had every single right even to be cynical. Like those men on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion, Luke twenty four twenty one. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. What a miserable time for them. Or Thomas, later in John 20, 25, Lest I see his hands the marks of the nails, place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. That's disappointment at its height. And Jesus is saying, wait. Let not your hearts be troubled. Death is not the end. What a promise. And not only is death not the end for me, Jesus, it's not the end for you either. And you don't even need to wait till heaven to begin living the resurrected life. You can live it now. Great preacher Horatius Bonar wrote about that. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart I call this Savior mine. Tis he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because he loveth me. I live because he lives. Second promise we have is knowledge. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Because he lives, they too will live. And on that day, see that? In that day. In that day. The day of resurrection. In that day, you'll finally realize everything that I said was true. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me. 
in that day you'll comprehend everything that that we that that I said here in in verse seven through eleven. Look at seven through eleven. It's not going to be on the screen. You don't even have to turn the page. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the father. And it is enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. And in that day, the day of resurrection, you'll finally realize that this is the truth. The second promise, the promise, the knowledge of Christ based on that resurrection. Because Jesus has been raised and because we've been given new life, we're able to know who he is. That's why, that's why just, what, a couple of days after the resurrection, Tom, what's Thomas say? My Lord and my God. He got it at the resurrection. Now, he needed a little coaxing, but that was Thomas. It's what he's been teaching his disciples all along, the religious leaders and anybody else who would listen. Been claiming deity all along. Talked about it over and over and over in this gospel. And the basis of that knowledge, the starting point of that knowledge is the resurrection of Jesus. And we could not have that knowledge any other way but by the resurrection. James Boyce says, without this, there, bless you, without this, there would have been no faith and no knowledge that he was indeed who he claimed to be. And he claimed to be God. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't know. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 1, 3 and 4, His Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the, de- from the dead. Was declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. And secondly, unless men and women who are dead in their trespasses, dead in their sin, are resurrected, raised to new life, we still can't know who Christ is. His physical resurrection. Now get this. His physical resurrection, although necessary for the knowledge as to who he is, is still not enough. For, have, for us to have this knowledge, because I live, you will live also. You get that? It's only when he plants the life of God in us. When God plants his life within us, enabling us to understand that truth and to respond to Christ, that's when we truly know. Of course, at the resurrection, they knew finally he is who he says he is. But to have our hearts awakened is another resurrection. The presence of Jesus is a living, eternal presence. See that? 
In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. A living, eternal presence. He rose. He conquered death. He, he, he rose to live forever. And now think, if Christ is living forever, he rose to live forever, and he, and, and he is in me, he is in the, the believer, he dwells within the believer, then the believer lives eternally. Is there any way you could not live eternally if the eternal Christ is living within you? Although that's figurative in many ways because he says God is living with us, within us as well. That's not any more special than God's omnipresence. But that's the assurance of our living forever. Christ, the eternal presence, lives within the believer. He never dies. The believer is made eternal by the eternal presence of Christ within him. In fact, when Jesus says, I live, he means he lives abundantly. He lives eternally. He lives life in all its fullness and all its meaning. And he's living that within the believer. Christ imparts that same kind of life within the believer. And it's eternal. Christ in you is the first time we see this glorious truth in Scripture. And Paul fleshes out that Christ in you even even more. We see in verse 23 as well. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then John tells us again in 1 John 3, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. The presence of Christ is a living union, a mutual indwelling. God, Christ, the believer, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We don't even have time to talk about that. So when Christ rose from the dead, his believers knew something. Not only he promised resurrection, he promised knowledge. His claims were true. In an absolute sense, his claims were true. Jesus really was in God. God is eternal. So by being in God, Jesus was bound to live forever and he's bound to rise from the dead. And because of that, you'll live also. What a great promise. Third promise. He promises further revelation. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? 
This is a step beyond the promise of just knowledge. Hey, he's resurrected. That's what, everything he was saying was true. This is a step beyond this. Manifest myself to them. Having come to know who Jesus is, having believed in him, we'll know him even more fully. But this knowledge he's talking about when he says, I manifest myself to him, those who what? He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The one who loves me is the one who keeps my commandments. Hmm. So, in the resurrection, with the promise of the resurrection, we see him resurrected. We see him on the third day. And so now, now, we, know, now we know about him. But then taking the next step with obedience because of our love for him creates him manifesting himself to us and even greater knowledge about him or deeper knowledge about him. It means that not only his presence is revealed, it means that his, his presence is brought to light. His presence is illuminated in our lives. He, we, we've been, the, the believer has been brought to life. He manifests himself to his disciples in a very special way. Don't you know more about him today than you did when you became a Christian? Of course, when you became a Christian, you realized you had some knowledge that, yes, he is who he says he is. But you know much more today because he has manifest himself to you. He discloses his person and his nature and his goodness, illuminates himself within our hearts and our lives. It's this very special consciousness within our souls that grows as we love him and are obedient to his commands. Further, how could this be possible? How could something like this be possible if Jesus didn't provide the revelation himself? You notice that? And I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's not something you can conjure up. You can go to Bible study and you can read and you can pray and you can listen to sermons all the live long day. But until Christ manifests himself to you, you cannot know him. You cannot grow in your walk with him. You cannot have a deeper relationship with him. You cannot know him unless he reveals himself. But the promise here, that's exactly what he does. Hallelujah. Later in verse 26, Pastor Greg went over that a couple of weeks ago. He says that in the future, the future after Pentecost, the disciples would come to know Jesus better. Even than in the days of his physical presence, he said, because the Holy Spirit, he will what? Teach you all things. How will he do that? Not physically. 
The whole point of this passage is he, he, he's not going to be with them much longer. He's going to show him the, himself to them one more time after the resurrection to open their eyes to the knowledge of who he really is. Then he's going to go away. He's not going to be with them much longer. And God's going to send another helper. And so there's some conditions so that, so that he can manifest himself to them. Uh, there's some conditions to it. The conditions keeping his commandments in love. Not conditions for salvation, but conditions to know him in deeper ways. The idea is not that the believer initiates this relationship of love by demonstrating obedience. If I obey his commands, I'm demonstrating my love for him, and I'll receive some greater knowledge of who he is. That's not the case, no. The fourth gospel repeatedly, over and over and over, makes it clear that the initiative in this relationship is Christ. The the initiative in this relationship is the Father. The idea is that that ongoing relationship between Jesus and his disciples is characterized by obedience on your part and my part. We show this relationship by Our obedience to him, our obedience to his commands. We love and obey Jesus and he loves them in exactly the same way that he obeys his father and his father loves him. And further, as the father in in his love for his son shows him all things, so the son in his expression to his disciples will show himself to them, will manifest himself to them. This entire teaching in just this couple of verses is made so very clear in chapter 17 when we get to it. This is not work salvation we're talking about. But the question for you today, the question for us today, is do you have that obedient walk as a result of his raising you from death into life. Do you have that obedient walk when you're obeying his commands because of your love for him, because of what he has done for you? Do you have such an obedient walk where he manifests himself to you and you're continually to know him in deeper and deeper ways? Do you have such a walk? Or do you think that since you've been justified by faith and faith alone and there's no need for you to walk obediently? It's true that we're saved by grace through faith, but it's also true that we walk the Christian life by love. Love for the Son and love for the Father. It's true too, as James say, faith without works is dead. John says in 1 John, this is love for God to obey his commands. Only when these elements are fully present does Christ reveal himself to his disciples. And this is the place where you are. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this part of the message is not for you. This is where you believers are right now, this very moment. Love expressed in obedience entails a deeper relationship with Christ. Are you growing in that relationship? 
Arthur Pink says, this manifestation of Christ is made only to the one who really loves him. And the proof of love to him is not by emotional displays, but by submission to his will. There's a vast difference between sentiment and practical reality. The Lord will give no direct and special revelation of himself to those who are in the path of disobedience. He that has my commandments means hath them at heart and keepeth them. That's the real test. We hear, but do we heed? We know, but are we doing his will? Obey his commands. And we're not talking about the spectacular things. But I don't know that any of his commands are that spectacular for us to do. He's talking about simply doing the common things that he's commanded for us to do. And when you do those things, he says that you'll grow in grace. If you obey, then he'll reveal more and more of his heart to you. You'll come to know him, not just know about him. The other hand, if we don't obey, he'll cease to reveal himself to you. And your love for him will weaken. Charles Simeon said, we must not imagine that the adoption of certain sentiments, read into this old language some, the adoption of certain sentiments, or the joining of ourselves to a particular set of people, a denomination maybe, or the manifesting of a regard for public or social ordinances, or the having had great exercises of mind in reference to religion, studying hard, with many hopes or fears or joys or sorrows, or the feeling of strong confidence about the safety of our own state, or any certain proofs of love to Christ, these things not only may, but often do exist where there is no real love to Christ in the soul. There is one mark and one only, whereby we can form any decided judgment about the states of men, and that is, by their fruits you shall know them. And then Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus doesn't really answer his question. That's why I just threw this in at the end of this point. Judas was a common name back in those days, but, um, uh, but John wanted to make it really clear that he wasn't talking about Judas Iscariot because we saw at the end, toward the end of chapter 13, he's already been sent out. He's already been dismissed. But Judas was a common name. It's not such a common name today, thanks to Judas Iscariot. James was a common name, too. There were two, at least two disciples named James. And commentators, although not really sure who this Judas is, we think it may be Thaddeus. Um... And he's only mentioned a couple of times. This is the only time he says something. How is it, he says? How is it that you'll manifest yourself to us? He just said, I'll manifest if you obey my commands out of your love for me, then I'll manifest myself fully to you. How is it? How will that happen? He hears these distinctions. 
He, he, he says, I won't manifest myself to the world. I'll manifest myself to you. How's that going to happen? You're the great Messiah. You're coming in greatness. You're coming in power. And the whole world will see. He still doesn't get it. Jesus is the messianic king. The world must see him reveal himself. Jesus doesn't really answer that question. He just goes on with the next promise. And that last promise, that fourth promise, is his presence. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's the promise. Final promise. It's a promise of his own personal presence in the Christian Back in verse 17, he's answered that in 17 already, 14, verse 17. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This was something entirely new when Jesus promised it. I'll make my abode in you. My Father will make... His abode in you. It's not like the idea is new. Um, the, the the Spirit of God was was with God's people throughout the Old Testament, but now in the, for lack of a better term, in the New Testament age, in the New Testament dispensation, what we have here is. It's not that the Holy Spirit will be with you. The Holy Spirit will be in you. I will be in you. The Father will be in you, not just with you. We saw the Spirit with the Hebrew patriarchs. We saw the people of Israel had had the presence of God with them day in and day out. David said, take not your Holy Spirit from me, God, the Spirit of God was always with His people. The new thing here is that He will be in them. What a blessed reality for us. If one keeps on loving me, I'll make my abode in Him. And that's that. when Jesus said, if anyone loves me, it's better translated if anyone keeps on loving. It's a continual thing. If anyone keeps on loving me. And he abides in you. The heart becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so a fit, a very fit dwelling place for the Father and the Son. Don Carson says, so while Jesus leaves his disciples in order to prepare in his father's house a dwelling places for his followers, he at the same time joins with the father in making a dwelling place in the believer. I go to prepare a place for you, but it's going to make an eternal dwelling place for us. At the same time, he and the father is making their dwelling place in the believer. Four great promises. The resurrection. That we will too will be resurrected spiritually. We'll be raised with Je- as Jesus was raised. 
that we will know him as God. That we will receive more and more revelation of him and from him as we continue to obey and grow in our love for him. And that he'll come and dwell in us. What great promises. Some of them are more or less automatic. Some of them are conditional with regard to um, the, 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 the promise of obedience and growing in grace and growing in knowledge, obeying his commands. But conditional or not, none of these promises, as great as they are, apply to you unless you've come to Christ and he's saved your soul. There's no hope for you to receive one single promise from God unless you repent and believe. You know who you are. Those of you who today don't know Christ as Lord. The only promise you have is that apart from receiving him as Savior, you face eternal damnation. And unless your dead soul is resurrected... This promise is not for you. He's coming back. And when he comes back, we'll all see him again. Every single one of us. And friends, it's better for you to deal with him today than to deal with him on that last day. Because that last day, it'll be too late. It is much wiser For you to run to him today and say to him, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin. I want you to be my Savior. Jesus, Lord, I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. Save my soul. Run to him today with that prayer. You think about that. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a closing hymn. And encourage you as we sing about the grace of God, the wonderful grace of God. If you need prayer, if you need to talk to someone, if you have questions about today's message, during this hymn, just make your way to the back. There'll be someone back there to receive you, to pray with you, spend time with you. Our elders will be back there, others. Simply trust Him today. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your grace. Brought Your church together today. We thank you for manifesting yourself to us. Lord, do it more. Do it more. For your glory. Amen.